Our scripture reading today, our Old Testament passage, comes from Genesis uh, chapter 1, 20 and 21. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Our New Testament reading is from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll be reading verses 54 through 58. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And our scripture passage today is from Exodus, and chapter 7, and I will be reading verses 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before the Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Okay, so after a lot of setup in Exodus, we are now uh, in the action-packed part, okay? Soon we will get into the ten plagues. Uh, I haven't quite decided how I'm going to organize our sermon series for the ten plagues, but most likely I'm going to group them together in some way. So hopefully if you're uh, kind of wondering, like, am I going to have to sit through ten weeks of sermons about uh, in a row about plagues? Uh, probably not. But... Today's, pace, uh, today's passage is not one of the uh, famous ten plagues. It's usually classified as a sign or a wonder. However, this episode's pretty important because it serves as an introduction, as a way to foreshadow what is to come. And as we will see, even though this seems like a simple story, there's a lot of meaning being contained. Now, you'll remember uh, that this is not the first time we have seen this sign of a staff being transformed into a snake. Uh, When Moses expressed concern to God about gaining the respect of the Israelites, God gave him three signs to perform. And the first of these signs was to throw down his staff, uh, which would then transform into a snake. And Moses was then instructed to grab the snake by the tail, uh, which is not how you're (laughs) supposed to grab snakes, but uh, it results in the snake turning back into a staff. So kids, don't try that at home. Uh, we will soon learn that the, that, the, 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 the sign Aaron performs uh, before Pharaoh in our story today 
is a bit different, okay? Now, uh, we see in this scene that the transformation of the staff into a snake is also a test of legitimacy. Pharaoh wants a demonstration of power. Last week, we talked about the importance of power in Egyptian culture. In fact, that's been one of our recurring themes in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's been about power and how we use power in the world and Pharaoh's idea of power and God's idea of power. Uh, And last week, we talked about the importance of power in the culture of Egypt. Pharaoh lived in a world controlled by forces, powerful forces by various gods. And for Pharaoh, uh, it was all about power. Uh, you know, who had the power? How much of it? And could it be controlled? Uh, moral arguments were pretty unimportant. If you had the power, whatever you did was justified. Uh, we would say might makes right. Um, you know, as, as the Greek historian Thucydides said, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. That is the, uh, the ancient world for you. Uh, and so God instructs Moses to perform this sign because it is speaking the language that Pharaoh understands, this language of power. God even knows Pharaoh's going to ask for it. In verse 9, God tells Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder. And you'll notice it's not an if Pharaoh, it's a when. Uh, Pharaoh wants to know what kind of power he is dealing with, with Moses and Aaron. And they are prepared to oblige. Now, Aaron throws down his staff, and it becomes a serpent. But what may surprise us a bit is that, the, that Pharaoh summons his wise men and sorcerers. Uh, here they're collectively referred to as the magicians of Egypt. So we have three different words being used here for these practitioners. We have uh, hakamim, which is uh, from the root of wisdom. So wise men is a really good translation of that. A wise man wasn't necessarily someone who did something with magic, Uh, It could have been any kind of court official, any kind of advisor, someone who was considered intelligent, someone who could help the pharaoh make good decisions. Uh, But, you know, wise men are pretty good translation here. Um, Sorcerer is a great translation for the next term. Uh, This was uh, referred to, you know, specifically as someone who would cast spells. And then we have this word, uh, kartom, which uh, can be used for an astrologer or really anybody who communicates somehow with the divine realm. And magic was a big deal in ancient Egypt. People had uh, much less control of their lives in the ancient world, and so a whole class of practitioners developed whose purpose was to help people control the whims of fate. Uh, These professionals were usually literate, uh, they developed a body of secret knowledge uh, that, you know, they guarded and kept to themselves. You know, how better to uh, control. Uh, you had to go to them if you needed help with something you couldn't understand. And, uh, you know, there would be some kind of charge for it. In uh, Egypt, it's developed an ancient civilization with a resource, with the resources to support this kind of group was very advanced in the expertise of these arts. This was a respected profession. You know, we kind of read this over and we're like, ah, it's like people who read horoscopes or something. But that's, that's not what's really going on here. This would have been like probably like the, you know, Egyptian equivalent of like the Manhattan Project scientists. I, you know, I saw Oppenheimer a couple weeks ago. So uh, that seems like a good analogy. You know, this would have been a respected thing here. Uh, 
Now that's the Egyptian view of, uh, of these uh, magicians, these uh, wise men. But if we think back, if we remember back to Genesis, this is not the first time we've come across this group of people, these wise men. Uh, back in Genesis, the Pharaoh had a dream that was particularly concerning to him. And so he summoned the wise men and magicians to interpret his dream. Uh, they all fail, and it's only the Israelite Joseph who was able to interpret his dream. Now, also, you'll remember back at the very beginning of Exodus, when the Pharaoh first notices that the Israelites uh, are, are growing and becoming strong, he decides he has to do something about it. And so he summons his advisors to figure out a way he can deal wisely with them. So, you know, that there's that word wise again. Uh, he has to figure out what to do about this Israelite program. And they come up with some suggestions, all of which, as we uh, talk about in our beginning of Exodus, backfire. So when we come to this passage in Exodus and we read about these magicians and wise men, we're kind of already set up for them to be failures, okay? We're going to expect them not to do a good job because that's every other time Pharaoh and his advisors and wise men have been mentioned, it's ended in failure. So it's kind of a surprise that these magicians actually succeed in replicating Aaron's sign uh, when so far they have been presented as incompetent. Uh, But, of course, as the story goes on, their success really only heightens the drama as Aaron's serpent swallows the Egyptian magician serpent. So still, despite the, the defeat of the court magicians, uh, Pharaoh is unimpressed. Uh, his heart is hardened, and uh, that sets us up for the first of the ten plagues. So that's an overview of our passage here. Now, on the surface, this seems to be like a really straightforward story. In fact, you probably heard this and you were like, oh my gosh, how is he going to get a whole sermon out of this? How, but really, when, when you start to read this, you realize there is a bit more going on here than it seems like. This story is actually like totally bonkers. And I really want to get that across to y'all today because it's really interesting and it makes a really good point. Uh, so first, this sign of the staff turning into a serpent is not quite the same one that Moses had performed earlier before the elders. Our translations completely mislead us here, and we miss something far crazier that is going on. So, back in chapter 4, when Yahweh gave Moses the three signs to prove his legitimacy to the Israelites, Moses threw down his staff and it becomes a serpent. Now, in Hebrew, the word for serpent is nakash, okay, nakash. Now, that's the, the typical word for snake. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Nothing strange or weird there. If you have a snake, you have a nakash, okay? However, in this scene, when Aaron casts down his staff, a different word is used for what the, snake, what the staff transforms into. Rather than a nakash, the staff transforms into a tanin. Now, our translations gloss completely over the difference, okay? But a tanin is something very different from a snake. A tanin is better translated as, get ready for this, a sea monster. I am not kidding. Now that sounds absolutely bonkers, okay? And you're right. And so that's why our modern translations, probably every one of your translations, I don't think there's any modern translation that translates it as sea monsters. But if we look in the Bible, a tanin is not a snake. 
the Tzanin is something far more uh, fantastical and monstrous. And I think we have to conclude that Exodus, by changing the word from Nakesh in chapter 4 to Tanin in chapter 7, must be doing this because it wants us to understand something. Now, let me kind of make this even crazier. Okay, so the earliest translation of the Hebrew Bible was in Greek. Okay, so the first time the Bible was translated was in Greek. And the story goes it was produced sometime in the 3rd century B.C., by a group of 72 Hebrew scholars to be included in the library at Alexandria. Yeah, that one that you've heard of. At the request of King Ptolemy II. Uh, who, surprisingly, you know, ironically maybe, is a pharaoh of Egypt. Um, and that translation is known as the Septuagint. Yeah, so sometimes in your Bible you'll see a footnote, you'll see it referenced, and it's actually abbreviated LXX, Roman numeral 70. Now, when you translate a language, you are automatically forced to interpret that language. So one of the earliest uh, interpretations of the Old Testament is the Septuagint. That's why I'm talking about that. So when we come to this passage in the Septuagint, and we read this in Greek, okay, I bet every one of you knows the Greek word, that the Septuagint translates Tanid into. And it's probably going to surprise you. Anybody, anybody going to take a guess here what it is? What is it? What do you think it is? Close! Sea monsters get close. Dracon. As in dragon. Yeah. This is like some Game of Thrones stuff here. That's right. It's dragon. That's what Septuagint translate into. You see, the Septuagint wasn't afraid to go there the way our Bibles are. Now, my point is, if this change from snake to dragon is intentional, then, then what is the point chapter 7 is trying to make by, by using such, you know, kind of a shocking term? Well, the point of using Tanin or, or Dracon is because much more than a snake is intended here. And I actually think dragon is a really good picture to have in our heads because, uh, you know, tanin, uh, a dragon, a tanin, a sea monster, I mean, that's something we would associate with like, a, with like a fantasy novel or something, right? But, you know, for the Egyptians, you know, maybe they believed that there were actually dragons, they were actually real. Uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily believe that, although Miles's idea of the Loch Ness Monster, you know, some people believe that. Um, but they were had this legendary mythological idea to them, okay? Uh, just like a dragon would have that kind of idea to us. Uh, and, and these legends and myths shaped how they thought about the world. Now, all throughout the ancient Near East, there were these stories about a chaos monster. And the chaos monster is what's being symbolized by a sea monster, by dragons, by Tani. That's it. All of that's kind of the same idea. And typically in these myths, the hero god had to fight and defeat the chaos monster. Now, our Bible was part of that culture. And so throughout the Old Testament, we actually have lots of references to these chaos monsters. Uh, the Psalms are full of them. So actually, if you were you know, sort of paying attention, the Psalm I read... Uh, earlier, uh, Psalm 148 for our call to worship actually mentioned sea monsters. It actually mentioned the Tanin who are called to praise God. 
In fact, Tanin are first mentioned in Genesis in our creation story. So, you know, I read that verse, those couple of verses earlier. Did anybody catch sea monsters? Okay, the translation actually uses sea monsters, and my translation does, right? Yeah, you might have, like, heard that, and you were like, wait a minute, because I did that on purpose, because I wanted you to think that. Like, what? Sea monsters? Yeah, you didn't know that was in the Bible. But the creation story of Genesis is, like, purposely meant to be unique in the ancient world, because in all the other stories in the ancient world, creation... Uh, all the other creation stories take place after a battle between a hero god who must first subdue this creation, this chaos monster. Genesis 1, though, is different because God simply just speaks the universe into existence. That's weird. That was really different from every other story that the Israelite cultures encountered. And if you look at Genesis 1.22, you know, you have God filling the sea and the skies with various creatures. And then almost as an afterthought, it tells us that God created the great sea creatures. And that's Tanin. Okay. Now, we read past that, but this point would have been like, boom, mind-blowing to the ancient worlds. What Genesis is kind of saying here is, you know, number one, the Tanin did not pre-exist God. Okay, so chaos is not something that was like, you know, outside of God, uh, the way it was in the other mythologies. And not only that, you know, they are a created being of God, and they're fully in God's power. In fact, the picture we have here in Genesis 1 of the Tanin is that they're almost like rubber ducks in God's bathtub. I mean, they're, they're kind of given almost this, like, belittling status to show the immensity of God. And that, like, again, would have been totally mind-blowing uh, uh, to the rest of the culture here. Now, it may seem a little out of place, then, to have a dragon, you know, being created here uh, that's associated with a sea in our story today. But you'll remember that, you know, we have this, like, water is a big theme in uh, Exodus. Uh, remember, the Nile was the source of strength and order for the Egyptians. Uh, you know, it was predictable. It's uh, flooding happened every year, and that provided the prosperity for Egypt. There was this great order and stability to Egypt. And now Aaron has, uh, in this miracle, this sign has brought watery chaos to Pharaoh's court. Uh, it has shown uh, Egyptian stability uh, it is challenged, that idea. Uh, remember earlier in the story, uh, drowning in the Nile had been the means by which Pharaoh had executed the Israelite male babies. Now, here, what is a source of strength for the Egyptians and was a threat for the Israelites becomes a sign of danger for Pharaoh. Pharaoh ordered the Israelite newborns to be cast into the Nile. Now Aaron casts down his staff and transforms it into a watery dragon. In Hebrew, the verb for cast is the same rare Hebrew word, salak. It wants us to tie these two ideas together. So my point is when we read Tanin, when we read what this staff is being transited into, for the ancient world, these are fearsome chaos monsters of their nightmares. You don't want to think about uh, or, or see Tanin. The mythologies of the ancient world were all about how you banish that chaos monster and keep it away. They were the opposite of order. And then they were suppressed by the hero god. They were always lurking, waiting to regain control. And one of the ways that you try to regain control and push the chaos away was through magic. The magic arts were one way this was accomplished. 
Uh, Another way this was accomplished was through the uh, maintenance of order. That was the job of the pharaoh. The pharaoh was supposed to maintain, and this, this is an a Egyptian word we keep coming back to because it's really important to the idea of, of Exodus, ma'at. Ma'at was the order. That was what pharaoh was supposed to do. And now what do we have? We have chaos monsters being created out of staffs. In fact, the, for the Egyptians, every night, the Egyptian sun god, Ra, did battle with chaos. The setting of the sun was pictured as Ra journeying through the watery underground realm of darkness on his boat. And when he passed through the land, he is assaulted by what? A giant serpent. Yes, a giant chaos serpent monster called Apep. Uh, in fact, the Egyptian god Set sat at the front of his boat with a spear to uh, ward off Apep from devouring Ra. And again, you know, like I said, this Apep is no ordinary uh, snake. He is a giant evil dragon creature. He's the chaos monster that has to be defeated uh, for order to be maintained. Now, here's the thing. Okay, Egyptian mythology, that's cool. But if we understand the symbolism of the Tanin that Aaron has just transformed his staff into, then we'll notice that what follows is actually crazy ironic and not like Alanis Morissette ironic either this is like actually ironic so think about what I've said here here's the thing okay if you were pharaoh or a magician what is your job you want to maintain order and banish chaos what have the magicians just done at the behest of pharaoh they've created more chaos monsters. They've unleashed more chaos into the world. A minute ago, we had Aaron throw down a staff and we had one tanine. Now we have multiple tanines. It's like a country sea monster jamboree in Pharaoh's court now all of a sudden. It's not what you want. So again, we have these Egyptian wise men proving themselves far from wise and showing themselves inept as they battle Yahweh and his people. But in the end, what we see is it is Yahweh who not only demonstrates his power, but also that he has total control over the forces of chaos. Yahweh unleashes chaos and then defeats chaos as the monsters produced by the Egyptian magicians are swallowed by the one transformed from Aaron's rod. Now, there's one more key point I want you to see here that's being made by this passage. When Aaron's serpent swallows the Egyptian serpents, it uses an important verb. The verb in Hebrew is bala. And swallowed is like a great translation of bala. But more important than, than how it's translated is how it's used throughout the West of the Bible. See, swallow is used in these mythological stories to, distur- to describe a complete and a thorough defeat of an enemy. When you swallow an enemy the victor absorbs all of the foe's strength and power. It's like a total routing, okay? It's like, yeah, so that's what, what's being pictured by this idea of swallow up. It's no, it's not just like the, it, it, it's a verb that has a lot of power here. And so again, we return to our theme of power. As Pharaoh and Yahweh battle over who is the superior power, and here's the big surprise, Uh, the Egyptian magicians are able to perform this sign as well. And, you know, like, we're kind of taken aback by that, right? Like, when you were reading this story, you were like, wait a minute, how are they able to do this? Like, Aaron's supposed to do this sign, and now they're... And, like, 
you're, you're a little surprised. Like, what do you do with that? Commentators spent a lot of time trying to develop explanations for the success of the Egyptian magicians. Like, oh, well, they were just kind of performing like an illusion. You know, Aaron's was actually real. You know, that's, that's usually what people come down to. But I think the explanation is pretty simple. Um, Exodus is acknowledging that those who oppose Yahweh have power. The power is real. Uh, the Bible is not denying its reality. It's not saying that, uh, uh, you know, evil, that there aren't evil forces in the world. Uh, it, it, it's saying, uh, you know, in today's passage, power is set plainly before us. And so what do we do with that? Well, I think that means that in our life, uh, when we see injustice and, and oppression, we aren't meant, we are not free to dismiss it. We don't just write it off. Our solution is not to overlooking. Suffering is real because the dark forces of the world are real and have power. Uh, The Egyptian magicians can transform snakes. It also, uh, but but what we shouldn't do is write it off uh, like the commentators do. Um, But neither should our attitude be one of rigid stoicism. We aren't meant to simply accept this with as much dignity as we can muster. Pharaoh is evil and his power is real, but it also must be challenged. Because what's also true is that Yahweh is stronger than the dark powers of this world. And he will overcome them. For God, the chaos monsters of this world are presented as his playthings. You know, his rubber ducks and his uh, giant bathtub as, uh, as Genesis sees it. We already see the foreshadowing of the sign that Pharaoh has no chance. All Pharaoh's powers will not only be challenged, but uh, also uh, defeated. They will be swallowed up. And it's this amazing point that Paul picks up in our passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, so 1 Corinthians 15 is probably like my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's like this incredible chapter. Uh, in, in this like 58 verses, uh, Paul seems like he never even pauses to take a breath. And what he does is he tries to explain what resurrection means. What does Jesus' resurrection mean? That's the point of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus' resurrection to Paul means that death, the great enemy of humanity, the most powerful weapon of the tyrants of this world, the ultimate power of the dark forces has been defeated. That's what resurrection means. And what's more, we are all made alive in Christ. So it's not just Jesus who's resurrected, but all of us. Paul says Christ is only the first fruits of the resurrection. There's more to come. And so the point for Paul is that death has been thoroughly defeated. Death is not being ignored. It's not being dismissed as illusory. Instead, death has been beaten because the point of resurrection is not just a passing to a new plane of existence, but the renewal of creation. It is a victory for life and creation. And so Paul concludes his chapter with these words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Yeah, it's the same idea. It's swallowed up. Paul is actually borrowing that phrase from Isaiah, who was also using this combat myth about the victory of of God over chaos. And, and using it for this picture of death, about how God would, Yahweh would eventually defeat death. And in Isaiah's version, in the Hebrew, it uses the same word, the same bala, the same word swallowed up. 
So for Paul, though, this victory is not an end into itself. The story doesn't end there. The victory is not just for the future. It has bearing on how we live today. Death being swallowed up means something much bigger to Paul than a future post-mortem hope. It means that the world has fundamentally changed. Chaos being defeated, the, the, the chaos monster being defeated has real-world consequences. The reigns of the oppressors, the, the oppressors, the pharaohs and the Caesars, and all the dark forces of the world have been defeated. A victory has been won. And that victory affects how we live our lives today, now. So as excited as Paul is about resurrection and the victory won through Jesus, Paul does not end his chapter there. Instead, Paul Paul finishes by telling the Corinthians that as a result of resurrection, they are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you know, compared to what Paul's just been talking about, that almost sounds like a little boring. It almost sounds mundane, right? Steadfast, immovable, work. Yeah, you know, um, but Paul's point is that the resurrection is not just a, it's not about just delaying everything to be undone in the future. The reason the resurrection matters is because it means that our work that we do today is no longer in vain. In other words, the resurrection gives meaning and purpose to what we do in this world now. And so Paul tells the Corinthians what this swallowing up means is not just for the future, for today. It means their legacy will not be monuments wasting away in the desert. It is not just about wishing for life after death, but the will for life before death and even against death. If beauty and justice, a world of life flourishing in abundance, was God's original goal for creation, and now by Jesus' resurrection is the future purpose of creation, then the world... Uh, then we as the new creation people, the resurrected people, can begin bringing this to the world today. And that means that there is a great hope for what we do in our lives. It gives us an incredible degree of what I would call audacity as we work over and against the real power of the dark forces of the world. Remember, they're real. However, we've seen that the sea dragons are swallowed. We've seen the chaos monster defeated and the ultimate enemy of life flourishing in abundance. Death itself has been overcome by Jesus' resurrection. And what that means is we are now free. We are free from the crushing inevitability of futility. Instead, we are free to do things like create art, knowing that it's not in vain. We are free to plant trees and gardens, knowing that it's not in vain. And we are free to fight for the oppressed, feed the hungry, we're pr- we, to teach, to promote justice, and to act in this world, in, in, and to act, to build this world into something better. Because one day it will be something better. And we have seen that we can be a part of this. Death has been swallowed up. And now we are free, free to practice resurrection.